Having dealt as far as it was humanly possible in our limited time with justification, we have an even more difficult passage before us for the remaining 20 minutes. Predestination. I'll read the passage which contains the word so that we may get our subject placed squarely upon the book. Romans still, but Romans the 8th chapter, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. If you stop there, that's putting the onus upon the person's love to God. But it goes on. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Oh, I see. They love him because he first loved us. Right. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So this spans the whole of time, from the eternity past, when God's purpose was conceived, to the glory that's coming, when time shall be no more. The calling takes place now. The justification takes place now. But it's not a haphazard thing. It was known by God and it was planned by him. Now it's unfortunate that in our English word predestination we have the word that looks like the word destiny. And therefore some have become fatalists who dealt with this subject. But that is not necessarily the truth. That is only the accident of the English word. I'll give you the Greek word now. It is made of two parts. The word to predestinate is P-R-O, pro, that means beforehand, and horizo, which means to make a mark. Now the horizontal line, or the horizon, is the word that's used for predestination. There's not much faith about that. It's just marking off beforehand a person for a position that God has planned. Now if we're going to say that God has no right to have a purpose, that he has no right to plan, the whole thing ought to go on haphazard and rest upon whether you will accept the truth or not. Well, what a chaos the ages would be in. They're bad enough now, isn't it? But God has a purpose. But I think sometimes we've got a misconception. And I was speaking about this very thing. I didn't introduce it. It was introduced yesterday in Derbyshire. This very question. And I put it like this. I said, what is troubling you is this that there are countless millions in this world. And as far as you know, according to the scriptures, they've never heard the gospel and never will. Or they have lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago when the gospel was entirely impossible to reach them. Now we've got to think either this, that God made a slip and uh, he didn't quite bargain for this and he doesn't know how to manage it, or they're going to be saved whether they like it or not. But you see, I think we're on the wrong track. So the, the suggestion I said was this, but it needs a lot of searching to prove it, that when Adam was created, a chosen seed was already in Adam. For you remember how we are told that Levi was in the loins of his father Abraham, and Levi wasn't born. So there was a seed. And Malachi says that he chose man, and he placed him, in order that he may have a godly seed, or a seed of God. There was a seed. Now then, that man was put on earth, he was immediately trapped by a spiritual foe who was, anyway, 
far advanced of Adam's knowledge and understanding, and he became subjected to the bondage of sin and death. And that chosen seed in Adam were born outside the Garden of Eden, subjected to the processes of death, and were all belonging to that same company. But that Satan, that serpent, he also had a seed. For God said, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And the book, and the New Testament definitely says in parable form that just as surely as God sowed his seed in the earth, so the devil sowed his seed in the earth, and those who were sown were the children of the kingdom, not doctrines. Now you see, the action of the wicked one was to fuel this earth with millions of his own seed to swamp the true seed of God. And were it not for the interposition of God, it almost took place in the days of Noah. The whole earth was destroyed except one man's family. So that one man was only perfect with regard to his pedigree and all the rest were the seed of Satan. So God hasn't said that he's going to send his son to be the redeemer of anybody and everybody. He's going to send his son to redeem from the bondage of sin and death that the devil submitted that true seed to and bring them all out in glory. Who's going to fall and find fault with that, you see? So that when you read, as in Adam all die, so in Christ should all be made alive, don't say that means every man Jack that's ever lived, any more than if you said a liner that was named the Gloriana went down in the Atlantic and everyone in the uh, in that liner died. Well, you see, don't say that everybody on any other ship or on land died as well. It isn't everybody who was in Adam. Any more than we find when reading Romans 9 that there were not all in Abraham, who are of Abraham. There was a difference between those who were the physical descendants and those who were literally the seed. And that's all I can say in these few minutes, otherwise we shall be at the end of our time before we've started. Now then, God has a purpose. He means to redeem those who were subjected to the bondage of sin and death. But he has a purpose to fill the earth with his redeemed people. He has a purpose to fill the heavenly Jerusalem with his redeemed people. And he has a purpose to fill the, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And that's a part of his will that he's put it down. Now, I've met some peculiar people in my time. But I've never yet met a person go ranting up and down the country saying how he had been cheated out of the exercise of his free will because an uncle had died in Australia and left him £5,000. What right had his uncle to put down his name in a will and never ask his opinion. I've never met anybody like that. Well, you might as well tell God that he mustn't appoint the heirs and appoint where they're going to have their inheritance. You see, this is not dealing with merely whether you're going to believe the gospel or not. This is God having a place for you. And he's seen to it that you'll be called. He's seen to it that you'll be justified. And he'll seen to it that you'll be ultimately glorified and behind and before it all, he was working a, a plan that was not going to be left merely to chance. He had a purpose, a purpose of grace, and we are the recipients of it. So now we come back and look at this word predestination in verse 29 and ask, to what was the predestination? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, who on earth is going to reign against that? Here's predestination. If you call it fatalism, it doesn't matter. What a glorious fatalism for the believer who once was subjected to sin and death and all the degradation of it 
to be transfigured, to be conformed to the image of the blessed Son of God. Surely that's a wonderful thing for us to rejoice in. It cuts nobody out. It only makes sure of those who are in that they will reach this glorious goal. And when we come to the epistle to the Ephesians, it is that is parallel. There, instead of saying predestinated to the uh, image of the Son, we are predestinated to the adoption of sons. We find our place in the family of God and in the same context we are predestinated to an inheritance. And predestination is God putting down in his will those whom he intends to have an inheritance. He's making his will the same as every one of you in this congregation or listening to me. If you've got a brass farthing, you ought to have made your will so that somebody is not complicated when you're dead. God has seen to it that he's made his will and put his heirs down and their names are there in that book and God will see to it that they'll enjoy that inheritance that he's planned. This is predestination. This is not merely fatalism. This is the outworking of the purpose of God who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. You see, there's the word foreknown that comes in front of it. God is not taken by chance. He's not taken by surprise. He didn't say to himself, well, what am I going to do? I chose a lot of women to be in this glorious company but they happened to be born in the Middle Ages when all the women were shut up in castles doing tapestry. They never read anything and nobody spoke to them. They never learned anything and they didn't know a scrap about it. Or oh, what can I do about it? No, 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 no. He knew the time to be born and the time to die and the place. You may say, well, that's beyond me. Well, it's beyond every one of us. But he distinctly tells you that every hair on your head is numbered and the stars are known by him. This knowledge is too wonderful for us, but not for him. And he knew where I was to be born, he knew my upbringing, he knew my utter ignorance, but he knew one day somebody was coming all the way from America to stand up on a platform in Exeter Hall and utter about two words and knock me flat and turn me right about turn. I never knew a word about it till that moment, but he did. And am I going to object and say, well, that's an infringement of my rights? He ought to have consulted me whether I went to hear the man preach at Exeter Hall. Who's going to say that? Aren't I glad? And then I wake up to the fact that God wasn't taken by surprise. He was watching me when I knew not him. He knew all my circumstances when I was ignorant. And when it pleased God to reveal his Son in me, that I preach him among the heathen, said Paul, on the same lines. He didn't know the Saviour was watching him, but the Saviour did all the same. So we have this strong emphasis. Now then, we have this relationship with the image. And that goes right back to Adam. Adam wasn't indiscriminately a part of evolution. He didn't just come on the scene after upsurging of nature and struggling and battles and so on. Whether there's any truth in evolution or not, it's not for me to say. I do know this when the Bible starts. There's one man that is created as a result of a council in the Godhead. It stops and saying, let there be light and so on. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And Adam was made in the likeness of the image of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is definitely said to be the image of the invisible God. And Adam was made in the likeness of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And he was immediately attacked by the serpent. But that image, though it was defaced, was never destroyed. 
For after Adam had fallen, it still speaks about having a son in his own image. And the epistle of James speaks about men made in the similitude or image of God, although they sin sometimes and transgress deeply. So the image, though defaced, is never eradicated. And one day, it's going to be more than restored. God has predestinated every redeemed child of God that he shall be restored into that glorious image. But he will befit the circumstances of his calling and he will have a body like unto Christ's, but it will fit the earth or the heavenly city or far above all according to God's purpose for him. And so we have um, this strong emphasis. In um, dealing with this word foreknowledge, I think perhaps I will turn to one or two scriptures to help us. In Acts 26, verse 5, we read these words. Acts 26, verse 5. He says in verse 4, What my manner of life, this is Paul speaking, from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect, you know, that is a figure of speech because it's not grammatical. You can't be most straightest. But he says, don't you worry about that, that's what I feel like. And, and feeling is expressed in figures. The most straightest sect of our religion, I live the Pharisee. But my point is, knew me from the beginning. Now, there's no predestination there, you see, but they simply knew from the beginning. That's the word for no that we're looking at. And another reference is in 2 Peter 3.17. 2 Peter 3.17 Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also be led away with the error of the wicked and fall from your own steadfastness. You know them before. Where this word is used of an ordinary human being, it simply means to know what's going to take place beforehand. Now, we cannot be infallible in what we know beforehand, but a good many of us can come to a fairly reasonable conclusion, and the more we know about a thing, the more true it will be. But in God's case, there's no if about it. Now, you do know there are some expert chess players that they can take on... Uh, champions at it and they can play about 20 matches and they walk from one to the other and beat the lot of them. Well, if I had ch the chess men on the board and I was sitting in front of these monsters, he'd, he'd look at my chess men and say, you're out in three moves. But I say, who are you to predestinate me? Can't I do what I like? He said, you see then. And sure enough, before I know where I am, done. Three moves. Because he knew every possible move on the board and I didn't. Now, God knows every possible move on the board, friends. The knowledge is too great, wonderful for us. But he knew, without persuading me, without bludging me to believe him, he knew what my response was going to be when for the first time in my life I heard, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. I believed it. And when I believed it, I had not the remotest knowledge of the purposes of God, predestination, election, fatalism, or anything. That's all. But I woke up to discover later on, friends, that I was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
And if you think I'm going to object to that because some people say it's unfair or it's fatalism, you'll have another feat coming, as somebody says. Oh, no. We can't get away from the fact that God is ultimately sovereign and has got the last word. But we have a great deal of responsibility. He allows us plenty of length. But he will never allow you or me or anybody such an extent of liberty that by the exercise of it we will bring his own purpose to destruction. That would not be like God. He gives us a certain length of chain. But there comes a moment when his purpose and not ours has to take first place. And so we have various other phases of this. If you look at uh, Acts 15, as we've got the Acts open, Acts 15, verse 18. This is merely a summing up at the council of Jerusalem. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Well, who's going to object to that? Why launch a world into existence with all the possibilities of it if you don't know what's going to happen to it? Oh, God didn't do that. He knew. And so he's not taken by surprise. And then, you notice in the Acts of the Apostles, as we've still got it, and our time is fast running out, we won't go further afield, you get those extraordinary statements made concerning the interrelationship of man and God with regard to responsibility. Chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Acts 2, 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you mean to tell me God had no knowledge of what was going to happen to his son and why he sent him and what men would do? It's all written in the Old Testament beforehand in prophecy. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands. They weren't fulfilling the will of God. They were actuated by revenge or by pride or by ignorance or what not. They didn't know they were fulfilling the will of God and they're responsible for what they did. What they did was a wicked act to crucify Christ. What Christ came to do was to offer himself without spot to God. And here we have the meeting of the two almost irreconcilable things. The purpose of God and the responsibility of the agent. Now don't ask me to resolve them. They're in the scriptures over and over again. And this has a bearing upon the question we've raised. Now, I would never have taken this subject in the ordinary way as a short study for young believers had it not already been in the program and was not very well uh, recorded and I've tried to put it back onto the tape. Now, you young believers who are listening, uh, I trust that as you go through this series where we're dealing with basic things, there'll come a time when you'll be prepared to sit down and listen for three quarters of an hour instead of twenty minutes and have things laid out, explained a bit more intimately in detail. But I commend to you that all that you believe and all that you're taught and all that you listen to should be taken to the Scriptures. And if they accord with what God has said, whether you can explain it to yourself or to somebody else, that should be the first and the last word. God has recorded it. And as you grow in grace, you grow in the knowledge of Him and taught by His Spirit, 
things which are difficult to appreciate at the beginning will begin to fall into their place. But as soon as you turn around and criticise God and say, this can't be and I won't have that and what not, a door begins to shut and you'll soon be left to the counsels of your own puny wisdom instead of being taught by him who is the wisdom of God. So I say just farewell again to you for a time being. We hope to meet again in this same tape recording ministry when we shall be dealing with a few of the basic things that have to do with our salvation and peace. And the first one, as far as I can foreshadow at the moment, you see, my foreknowledge is not so infallible as God's. I make up my mind to take one thing and I shall take another possibly. But what is in my mind is, I think before we go much further, we ought to face the teaching of Scripture to answer the question, what is the scriptural teaching concerning the nature of sin? That's the disease from which we suffer. That's the thing that we need to be delivered from. That's which brought our Saviour to die for us. We ought to see if we can find out what the Scripture says. So God willing, the next time we meet, that is on the programme to consider the meaning of of 